This is Winter is Here, a podcast where we discuss how we arrived at the global battle between tyranny and democracy, and more importantly, how we can win. I'm your host, Yuri Lepstein, Executive Director of the Renew Democracy Initiative. I'm joined today by my co-host, RDI's Chairman Gary Kasparov, and Yale Professor Timothy Snyder, a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. He speaks five languages and reads 10 European languages, which puts my three and a half languages to shame. He has written many books, including Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin, On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, and The Road to Unfreedom, Russia, Europe, America. Welcome, Timothy. Glad to be with you. The way that I think it would make a lot of sense to begin this conversation, given that by trade you are a historian, is to try to think a little bit about how we got here. For background, I unfortunately did not have the chance to take your class at Yale, but that's something I regret. So I wonder if we can fix that right now, and if you can help us understand a little bit the history behind Eastern Europe and, and sort of the steps over the course of the last couple hundred years that ultimately led us to Russia's invasion of Ukraine today. I guess it's important to think of history as a series of possibilities rather than as a firm path that had to lead from one place to another place. Because you know now that we're in 2022, we wouldn't want to say that Russia has to be exactly the way it is and Putin had to do exactly what he did. It's been really Putin's language to say there's only one way that history can be. Because there was a baptism in Kiev in 988, therefore I have to invade Ukraine. Or because the Red Army won in 1945, therefore I have to invade Ukraine. Those things are myths, right? Those things are a tyrant's attempt to weaponize the past to make what he is choosing to do seem inevitable, necessary. Whereas what history offers, and this is why I appreciate the question, is a possibility to see that there are always lots of structures in play. There's always lots of human agency in play. If I were going to pick a theme that I think is most important for this war, it would be the theme of colonialism, the theme of empire, where if you look at Ukrainian history, there's just a long set of examples, I mean, going all the way back to ancient Greece, of people regarding Ukraine as a territory with natural resources that can be exploited. That's what the Greeks did. That's what the Poles did in the 17th century. In the 20th century, Ukraine is seen as a place to be exploited, both by Stalin and his five-year plan and by Hitler in his idea of Lebensraum. Now we're in a moment where the ideas of empire and colony are very much present. I mean, Putin speaks about the past as though the only lesson to be drawn from it is that Russia is a real place and Ukraine is not. That Russia has a real history, a real civilization, and so on. Russians are the only ones who can decide what history means, whereas Ukrainians are just subalterns, you know, peasants, subhumans, essentially, who don't have their own language, their own culture, their own state. And so when I think about history in this war, I think about the kind of balance of structure and agency. The Ukrainians are being treated as objects, but they're behaving as subjects. They're being treated as an object of imperial power, but they're resisting. And as they resist, they're teaching the rest of us about Ukrainian society. I think that's very important what you said about Ukraine not being a state. I think the way Putin perceived Ukraine and the way Russian propaganda has been portraying Ukraine over the uh, last eight years after the annexation of Crimea is more like Ukraine was a territory while Russia was a state. Actually, it was a big debate, a semantic debate in Russian language. I'm not sure it's correct translation when you say now Ukraine, Ukraine is in or on. 
So basically, Ukrainians insist on it in Ukraini. And Russian language, you know, the state language talks about now Ukraini, on Ukraine, denying the statehood, you know, as a political entity. And Putin somehow prepared or fertilized the ground for not even annexation of Ukraine, but dividing the territory. They talked about Poles could take this part, the Hungarians could take this part. And of course, you know, Russia is entitled to take what they call Novorossiya territories from Luhansk to Odessa, and of course, adding Transnistria. Since you talked about colonialism and empires, that's what empires always did. It's about expansion. Empire can live and thrive only through expanding its territory and influence. And if empire is shrinking, it's a dead one. Yeah, there's a really interesting point there about also empires cooperating with other empires. So if we think about the partition of Poland in the late 18th century, the Russian Empire under Catherine is the most important state, but there's the Habsburgs and the Prussians are going along as well. If we think about the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in 1939, the Soviet Union is expanding, Nazi Germany is expanding too. I think one thing which is very interesting about the present situation is that the Ukrainians only have to deal with one imperial power. And of course, that's already a lot. You'd rather not have to fight an anti-colonial war against Russia. But nevertheless, it's interesting that there's only one imperial power, right? The Poles and even the Hungarians are not interested in taking territory, right? They believe that state boundaries should stay where they are and people should function within the boundaries as they exist, which leaves Russia in a curious way alone for the first time in history. And like that's one way that Ukrainians in the 21st century have a kind of chance they haven't had before. So one of the things that we're getting a lot of is these kinds of historical arguments or what I would call kind of the misappropriation, malappropriation of history in order to offer some implicit justification for what Russia is doing. Just recently, I think about a week ago, Senator Rand Paul made a claim that it's somewhat logical and therefore by extension, to some extent, justifiable that Russia would go into Ukraine because Ukraine was, as he put it, part of Russia. What do you make of claims like that, that try to justify Russia's actions by using elements of geopolitical, geographic history and so forth? Well, I mean, first of all, if we're allowed to make that kind of argument, then that means that no territory on the entire surface of the globe would be stable, right? That means that the British should be allowed to invade India. You know, that means that the Dutch should be messing around in Indonesia. That means that France should return to Algeria, you know. If we followed that principle, it would legitimate basically endless war around the entire globe. So that logic is for me is just completely senseless. That logic of you know just accepting anybody's historical claim overturns the entire state system and all of international law as we know it. But the second thing I would say is that what's really more important is the future of Russia and the future of other countries. If Rand Paul really cared about Russia, I can't imagine he really does, but let's imagine he really cares about Russia. Does he want Russia to be a country that in its future has to look back on this war of destruction against Ukraine? Is that good for Russia to have that, to add one more war of this kind to its own history? I think the answer is clearly no, right? So it doesn't make sense to be cheerleading other countries to carry on imperial wars. That's not being friendly to them. It's actually harming them. It doesn't make sense for yet another generation of young Russian citizens to go get traumatized in another senseless war. So, you know, if you think about it in terms of not just history looking back, but let's think 50 years on, looking back at this moment, what would be good for Russia right now? And surely fighting this war is not good for Russia right now. Well, one of the ways that it looks like Russia is trying to make sure that its citizens 
don't have to think about this war in the future is that Russian school books are being purged of references to Ukraine, to Kiev. You know, obviously, they're not teaching what's going on right now. And there's this kind of incredible systematic effort in Russia to try to change the collective understanding of both its own history as well as current events, which personally I found very surprising because certainly I don't have the kind of history in Russia that Gary does, but I have spent a fair bit of time over there over the years. And, you know, I mean, it was never a free country. It was never a democracy, but access to information was relatively easy. I mean, the people did, I think, have the sense that there was an openness that in the last two and a half months has just disappeared. Do you have a sense of whether these kinds of efforts can ultimately be successful? And what can we do to try to combat them? As a historian, I really appreciate that question because I think that history isn't just interesting in and of itself. I seriously believe that it's a necessary building block towards a pluralistic society because not just in Russia, but in general, if you don't have history an uncomfortable history, then you can't have a democracy which can self-correct. You can't have any discussions. So if in Russia, there's a big taboo about talking about famine in Ukraine, which there is, then no one is going to see a problem when Russia starts expropriating grain from, you know, Kherson as it's doing right now. If in Russia, you have a memory law which says you're not allowed to talk about the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact from 1939 to 1941, then no one is going to notice that Putin's rhetoric about invading Ukraine was very similar to rhetoric of both Hitler and Stalin in September of 1939. So everybody, not just the Russians, but everybody needs history. But you're right that what's happening recently is extreme. I mean, I would put the obliteration of Ukraine from textbooks in the larger context of genocide. That if you're seriously thinking that future Russian children are not going to read about Ukraine, they're not going to read about Kiev, what does that say about your present intentions, right? What does that mean about what you're trying to do right now with this country that's been your neighbor? And, you know, I also wonder, again, thinking about the future, how on earth you can possibly make sense of Russian history without this big neighboring country. I just, I don't really see how that can be done. You know, I mean, Putin's claim, which is way overdone, is that Kiev is the beginning of Russian history. I think that's anachronistic and not true. But what I do think is true is that you can't make any sense of the origins of Russia if you don't talk about Kiev and Rus. So how are you going to do that? Whereas, how do you go from, we need Ukraine to make sense of ourselves to there's no such thing as Ukraine? I just, I think there's a problem there. Now, I would like to jump, you know, into this point and to go back not 200 years, but you just talked about 1,000 years plus. The baptism in Kiev and the Vikings there, and then, of course, the early days of Kiev's Rus, and then, of course, Mongols' invasion, the horde, the golden horde. And a lot of people now, they can't help but making parallels with the Russian past because what's happening now in Ukraine, in the east of Ukraine, you may describe it as a civil war because most of Ukrainian soldiers fighting in the region, they're Russian-speaking soldiers, many of them ethnic Russians. And uh, many videos that you receive from the region, they are just, you know, they conducted in, the fighting commands conducted in Russians. And it brings me to a question or just a thought that I think definitely worth discussing with a person of your uh, knowledge of history and perspectives connecting past, present, and future. What do you think about, it's a stretch, I understand, but still, 
talking about this war as the final showdown between European Russia, which was Kiev's rules, Novgorod, Pskov, independent republics oriented to the trade with Europe, and the Golden Horde that's eventually dominated Russian Eurasian space. So I'm going to say three things. The first thing is that it's this point that the Ukrainian soldiers speak Russian is, I mean, it's true. Like their language of command is largely Russian. They use Ukrainian though to find infiltrators and spies, right? And for me, the interesting thing about Ukrainians is that they have both languages and that makes them different from monolingual Russians, but also from monolingual Americans. You know, we have trouble understanding what's going on. We want these people to speak one language or the other and decide who they are. But I mean, what I've come to understand is that it's their ability to go back and forth, which is part of their identity. And that's very important. And so for me, it's less important that we say, like, that's a Russian speaker or that's an ethnic X or Y. It's more important who they think they are, right? Who they themselves think they are. And so Ukrainians are fighting, you know, as I understand them, they're fighting because they know who they are and they know what they're trying to defend. I take your broad historical point. I think that, you know, within Russia, when we look at the end of Rus, right, when Rus breaks apart, most of Rus actually goes to the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and then is in the Lithuanian or the Polish or broadly speaking, the European cultural sphere for the next 500 years, which is a long time. And the part of Rus which remains under the Mongols is the part where this new city, Moscow, was created. You know, Moscow is 500 years younger than Kiev. And that's a different trajectory. That's a trajectory that goes southward and then eastward, as you say, into Asia, and only comes back in the middle of the 17th century, right? Comes back and Kiev then makes contact with Moscow at the end of the 17th century. So I wouldn't go where you go. I wouldn't say like, this is the Mongols against Europe. But I do think that there is a kind of paradox inside the way that Putin and others think about Ukraine. Like we have to have Ukraine to be ourselves. But at the same time, we reject Europe totally. And that doesn't make any sense, right? Like that's a tension inside the Russian mind or the mind of Russians' leaders, which really can't be resolved because what is Ukraine right now? I mean, what is Kiev right now? It's a capital of a country where everybody wants to join the European Union, right? It's a capital of a country which when you invade it, their first move is to apply for the European Union, right? That's like, that's Ukraine's first move. We've been invaded. We'd like to join the European Union. So there's this contradiction where like we're invading Ukraine because we want to show that we're different than Europe. But at the same time, Ukraine, you know, Kiev, as you say, these other Western cities, like they are the European heritage of other states, Kiev and Rus, Grand Duchy of Lithuania, you know, sometimes the Russian Empire. So I don't understand how that's supposed to be worked out, except to say, like, we want to go in there in order to remove Europe. Yeah. So that's as good as I can do there, Gary. But it was long over a few centuries battle between pro-European friends in the northwest of Russia and a golden horde and the Moscow princes and late Tsars that succeeded in the golden horde empire. And it's, it's until the end of 15th century, the Novgorod still kept its independence uh, before it was conquered and ruined by Ivan III, the end of the 15th century. And still it took time. It lasted, I guess, for another hundred years before Ivan the Terrible eventually, you know, destroyed any sort of uh, self-rule in this part of Russia. So that's why I, I'm seeing now that this, this, it's Ukrainian war is like, you know, it's, it's a broader contest of the pro-European trend of Russian ancient world and the Asian dominance 
that absorbed Russian state and turned it into the Eurasian Empire. And there's a, some sort of, you know, smile of history that spontaneously around the world, many Russians opposing Putin's war and protesting against it, there is a new flag. They washed out the red stripe because they didn't want to see any blood on Russian flag. And now it's almost official now, flag of Russian opposition is white, blue, and white. Yeah. Which are the colors of Novgorod Republic. It's just, again, it's, it's, it's it, again, smile of history. So who could have thought about it? And I think people who just simply washed away the red stripe, the, the lower stripe on Russian flag, current Russian flag, they didn't think about it. But somehow history, you know, returns, as you said, you know, it's even if we don't want it, you know, it comes from the depths of time and shows that past, present and future are embedded. That's a very beautiful thought. I wanted to add something about this East and West and Asia and Europe, because the way I see it is that it's also about the Russian language. So what is the Russian language for? Is the Russian language just the political language of people in power in Moscow? Or is the Russian language something that can be used in different kinds of political projects, right? So like Russian is going to remain an important language in Ukraine, no matter what happens. It's going to remain an important language in Belarus for the foreseeable future, no matter what happens. And so I think for the future of Russia, the Russian Federation, it's very important what happens, you know, in places like Dnipro and Kharkiv, right? Minsk too, because those are places where people use the Russian language, but for different kinds of politics. And that seems to me to be extremely important, you know, just taking history out of it, but thinking more about the future and the language. And I just wanted to say about the flag, yeah, that's really remarkable what you say. It's very beautiful. And I think that the white, blue, white flag is actually extremely beautiful. The first time I saw that, I was struck by how beautiful that flag is, you know, how much nicer it is than the, <laughs> than, the, than the official flag. It's a really elegant symbol. You talk about Russian language. I think it's important because it's the way I see Russian language should be used in the future. It's more like English or French. It's becoming a language of not commonwealths, but the... I want to say Russian world, but since this, the phrase Ruskimir has been discredited by Putin, it's more of just, you know, seeing Russian language that is still, you know, functional language, not only in Ukraine and Belarus, in Lithuania, even in Estonia and Latvia, in the Republic of Georgia, still in, the, in Kazakhstan, because most of the literature, technical literature, is still in Russian. And my hope that Russia will become a country that will utilize the advantage of Russian language being uh, widespread and will rely heavily on these cultural and social and technological advantages presented by the fact that Russian language had been spoken from Vladivostok to Western borders of Russian Empire and is still being preserved as a very important tool of communication between different states and nations. Yeah, I mean, I guess as, you know, as the Germans found out and as the Americans also know, it matters that people know your language, but it matters more what you say in it. Yep. So let's think of what the German language meant in 1941, right? And then compare it to what it means now. So right now, German is an entirely unproblematic language in Switzerland and Austria and so forth, right? There's a realm, they call it the German-speaking realm, Deutschsprache Raum, where it's entirely normal. And German is a wonderful language of civilization. And that's all worked out. But that has to do with what happened inside German politics after the Germans lost a war 
you know? So I think for that vision that you're talking about to come true, Russia has to lose a war and there has to be a very significant reevaluation, you know, in Moscow of how we're using this language and what it's for, because the way it's being used right now, you know, as it's received in Ukraine, Ukrainians are going to keep using Russian, but they're not going to think, well, this has something to do with Russia. They're going to think, well, this is one of our languages. It's for our purposes. You know, I never thought it was weird that my mom, who was born in Kiev, doesn't actually remember Ukrainian. She only really speaks Russian at home. We speak in Russian. And that always just kind of seemed normal up until February 24th, when suddenly the fact that my mother was born and raised in Kiev became much more relevant, honestly, than Mm. it was before. I mean, usually I thought of myself as a Russian Jew. And now I'll say that I'm a Russian-Ukrainian Jew living in America, adding a whole lot of other adjectives to my identity, uh, which (laughs) made for much more of a mouthful. But, you know, you mentioned kind of this divide between East and West, and I actually want to look at that a little bit almost from a meta point of view, because in the U.S. and I think in other parts of the Western world, we're not used to thinking of history as such a key element of today's decision-making, right? I mean, even in times of war, right, when the U.S. went into Iraq or Afghanistan or Iraq the first time under Bush the father or, you know, any number of other things, any other big decisions that, that the U.S. takes, we don't usually ground those decisions in centuries of history. Meanwhile, Russia appears to be totally immersed right, in its own history for hundreds of years. And it and it uses that in a public way, right, not just among elite circles, but really in kind of its public propaganda. It's talking about centuries of history. And incidentally, I've seen similar things happen in the Middle East, where they'll talk about, you know, centuries, if not millennia of history. Do you buy this premise that there are regional differences in kind of our approach to history? And if so, to what would you chalk them up? So I guess as a historian, I'm going to try to put a wall around the word history and say that not every way of talking about the past is history. Mm. Some ways of talking about the past are myth or political memory. And I think that with respect to both Russia and the US, we actually need more history, not less. In the Russian case, we need history as a way for Russians to be able to criticize or talk about their own myths of the past. Because sure, Putin talks about hundreds of years of history, but he's totally incompetent as a historian. And the way that he uses history is to say, to use his own words, that things are predetermined, which they're not. I mean, no historian would say that. It's a very convenient view, if you happen to be a tyrant, that things are predetermined. And then you get to say what's predetermined. So I would say Russia needs more history, fewer memory laws, right? fewer taboos, more history. The U.S. also needs more history. Our problem is a little bit different. Sometimes, as you say, we don't talk about history at all. I quite agree. I mean, we have these kind of non-historical wars, like you mentioned, where we think all we have to do is invade and then history starts new, right? We get to decide how it goes after that. That's like American magical thinking. But we could also in the U.S. use some more history when it comes to our own myths. We also have myths of innocence. You know, we also can get scared about controversial subjects. So. I would actually say in both cases, we need more history rather than less. And one thing I've noticed in this war is that precisely because there is such a highly mobilizing myth of the past coming from the Kremlin, Americans and Ukrainians and everyone else have had to think about history to say, well, what's wrong with this? You know, if Putin says, for example, I have to invade Ukraine because 1945, then what do you say? You say, well, hmm, 
if you're Ukrainian, you might say, well, I'd like to just remind you that in 1945, Ukrainians were also fighting in the Red Army and also taking huge losses and also fighting on their way to Berlin. And if you're American, you might say, hmm, well, in 1945, the Soviet Union was a huge recipient of American economic aid, which isn't true right now. It's Ukraine that's the recipient of American economic aid. So perhaps there's a difference in these situations, right? So when people use myth, you kind of need history in order to orient yourself against that myth and to be able to tell a different kind of story. But, you know, when you talk about myth, it was a very popular meme in Putin's propaganda. We can repeat it. So, they kept saying that. And it's ironic. Again, you may call the smile of history. There is a repetition of history. Fascism is being defeated on the territory of Ukraine with American <laughs> lend <laughs> it's, it's, Yeah. But it's, it's, totally, it's reversed. But, but totally so many right. things are just looking the same. You know, the deportation of Ukrainians, the only difference, the trains now, nowadays, they go eastward and they went westward 80 years ago. But it's amazing. Ukraine is still a battlefield between fascism and anti-fascism. But Putin hasn't recognized that he's now playing the role of Adolf Hitler. Yeah. I quite agree. I mean, it, it is extraordinary. In the Second World War, nobody likes to think about the economic power. Like everyone wants to think it was just a matter of will. But the, the economic power is very, very important. And I agree with you. I just want to bring out something you said. I agree with you about the fascism. I mean, I, I think you know people in the U.S. have a hard time thinking about the Russian regime as fascist. And I, as for me, I've just asked, like, what is not fascist about it? You know, what, what attribute of fascism does it lack at this point? Yeah. There's a cult of the leader, cult of the dead, aggressive war of destruction. You know, whatever you want to list, it's there. Yeah, I think this was Umberto Eco's work about 14 basic components of fascism. And they all are there. You know, just you just go with one by one in the most condensed form. So by any definition, and now we have foreign aggression, the one that was still missing, and now you have it there. So that's it. It's a complete transition of authoritarianism into the aggressive form of fascism. And it's important to talk about this, the myth and also falsification of history, because Putin, you know, uh, kept playing with the mythology created in the Soviet time. You know, when I read books, Soviet textbooks, we were told that the American and British help, both economic on top and militarily, was insignificant. Now we understand that it was a decisive factor, especially in 1942. And Stalin was so sensitive about the dates that he created May 9th, which is not a real date. It just Germany capitulated a day earlier, but Stalin needed a special day for, you know, Soviet celebrations separately from other allies. And this myth that it just doesn't belong to the past because it's being used to attack others in the present and also they're trying to influence the future. And I think that's very important for us to talk openly about the uh, scenes and the crimes of the communist regime. And I think it's important for people to be reminded, many in the West still don't recognize it, that the World War II was started by Stalin and Hitler. It was not Hitler alone. And Soviet Union, Stalin's Soviet Union, bears the same responsibility for uh, igniting the war in Europe. And Stalin was as hungry and as vicious as Hitler. But, you know, they didn't as happened many times before in the past, dictators, they couldn't agree on how to split the world, you know, and eventually decided to attack each other. So this whole sort of concept of myth-making is really interesting. It's a really powerful weapon in the arsenal of propaganda, which I would say is used side-by-side with false equivalents, right? So on the one hand, you talk about your own history, 
and you know you either sugarcoat it or you claim that your history is something completely different from what it was. And then simultaneously, you offer false equivalents. And if you're Putin, then you say, well, you know, we're, America has done this a million times. America's way worse, et cetera. So that therefore, everything we're doing is justified. Or even if you're the former president of the United States, you're Donald Trump, and you say, you know, in response to a question about Russia, you say, well, are we so innocent? Right. And so there's this kind of sense of, you know, I guess popularly folks call it whataboutism. But Tim, I wonder if, you know, you could talk a little bit about kind of that use of false equivalence, whether it's used as a weapon by, you know, dictators like Putin, or perhaps as a result of misunderstanding on the part of Americans, where on the one hand, you have folks like Donald Trump essentially trying to justify their implicit support for Putin. Or you also, I mean, you know, I would argue you have a sense of lack of context of folks who will say that the U.S. is one of the most oppressive countries that exist, you know, in whatever our flaws, which as you, I think, alluded to earlier, you know, there are elements of our past that we're still uncomfortable with. But nevertheless, I think it would be a hard argument to make to say that comparatively, we are significantly worse than much of the rest of the world. So anyway, I, I want to kind of get your reaction to this use of comparative historiography. I, I don't know exactly what to call it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess the most important thing is that if we think things are right or wrong, we think they're right or wrong. And so the moment that someone says, I'm allowed to do this because somebody else did it, that means that they're morally unserious and there's no reason to take that argument seriously. If somebody on the American left says, Russian imperialism is okay because there's American imperialism, then that's an unserious person. Because if you're on the left, you're against imperialism. I don't care whose imperialism it is, you've got to be against it. It's not your job to justify it. It's your job to be against it. So that sort of argument just makes the person who uses it seem unserious to me because it means that they're not a moral person. It means that they're trying to justify something one way or another. It would be wrong to justify American imperialism with Russian imperialism too. You know, if you're against it, you're against it. The second thing is the whataboutism, like the appeal to hypocrisy. What is an attack on, I think, is the idea that there are any values at all. I think that's where the whataboutism ultimately goes, because what you're saying is, look, okay, I admit for a moment I'm doing something terrible, but everybody does terrible things. And the underlying meaning of that is everyone's the same everywhere, might makes right, everybody's a liar, right? The whole world's just like Russia. You're a fool if you believe otherwise. And what that does is it undermines the fact that there really are people out there in the world trying to do good things. You know, there really are governments that are better than other governments. There really are places that are different than Russia. And so the whataboutism, I think the way it ultimately is weaponized is that it's weaponized against values. It's weaponized against truth, right? It's saying, okay, you're a fool if you think that there actually are values and truth out there. In the world. I think that's where it ultimately goes. So, I mean, I agree with you that there are places that are, you know, better to live than Russia and that, you know, and so on. But I think that's not the essential point about whataboutism, right? I think the essential point about it is that it's meant to just demoralize people, right? It's meant to just demoralize people. So in the last few minutes here, I want to try to look ahead. And so this is for both of you. So Tim, maybe beginning with you, I wonder if we could draw out two different scenarios for what Eastern Europe could look like after this is over, whatever form over takes. And the two scenarios are, in one scenario, Russia and Ukraine fight to a stalemate, essentially. And Russia maintains its control of much of Luhansk and Donetsk, 
And basically, you still have a certain level of low-level fighting in eastern Ukraine, much as we've had for the last eight years. And so what does Eastern Europe look like in that scenario? And then what does Eastern Europe look like in the scenario where Ukraine actually wins? And what do I mean by Ukrainian victory? I mean, at the bare minimum, Ukraine pushes Russia back to the February 24th line. But ultimately, Ukraine actually succeeds in taking back most of Eastern Ukraine, if not Crimea. So I'm going to start somewhere else, Uriel, because I think that like what a Ukrainian victory is, is a decision for the Ukrainians. And they're going to be the ones who decide when they're ready to negotiate and what they're going to negotiate about. I understand the point of the question, but I get a little bit uncomfortable as an American thinking out the scenarios for them. I think, I mean, just to pick up part of your question, I think this idea of Ukrainian victory is very important. I remember the first time that as I was reading Ukrainian government stuff obsessively in the first few days after the war, I remember the first time I saw that phrase, Ukrainska Petamoha. And I thought, wow, it's amazing that you're using that phrase. It was only about 72 hours into the war, and they were talking about victory when everyone else was talking about the fall of Kiev, basically. They were already talking about victory. And that's the way they've been talking consistently. And that's what they believe. You know, They think they're going to win. And I think that question, what does Ukrainian victory look like, is a deep question. Because I think you know, if we want the Ukrainians to stop fighting, we have to offer them some kind of a future. This is now my Western we. Like we have to offer them somewhere to go, like the European Union. I think there has to be a lot more imagination in Paris and in Berlin about this, that if we want that war to be over, like in a way, going back to Gary's point about the similarities with the Second World War, you have to give the people who win a future. Right. So after the Second World War, there were plenty of victors that they needed the Marshall Plan. They needed European integration. They needed somewhere to go. Right. Britain was a victor, but it needed somewhere to go. And the Ukrainians are going to need somewhere to go. They're going to need, you know, American assistance. They're going to need like people helping to reconstruct the cities. They're going to need some kind of European future. And I think, you know, if they win, or I should say when they win, what they will have done is protect Europe and not just Europe, but democracy. Because like in the counterfactual where, where Kiev falls on day three, we're now really, that's now really winter, right? That's really dark because all the fascists and all the far right people and all the Putinists around the world are celebrating, right? If Kiev falls on day three, I think Macron probably would have lost the election. I mean, that would have been a huge, that's a huge moral swing. If Putin wins in Ukraine, that's a huge boost for Trump, right? So Ukrainian victory is a victory for everybody who at least believes, everybody who believes in democracy. And so that for me means that, you know, part of Ukrainian victory has to be the rest of us democracies offering them a way forward. I could add to this apocalyptic picture you just drawn. It's the fall of Taiwan, immediate fall of Taiwan after Putin's troops taking over Kiev in his hypothetical version of history. And I couldn't agree more. Ukraine is the front line of the global battle between uh, freedom and tyranny. And Ukrainian victory is not just victory to preserve Ukrainian territorial integrity. It's a victory for democracy in the region, in all Europe, and around the globe. And as Russian, I believe that Ukrainian victory should be decided by Ukrainians, but I want to see them liberating every inch of their country. Because the only way to stop Putin's aggressive wars in Europe is to make sure Putin's troops are defeated in Ukraine. And the chance to liberate my country from Putin's fascism is to raise Ukrainian flag in Sevastopol. 
That's for me the beginning of liberation of Russia. That's the beginning of the collapse of Putin's dictatorship. And that's why I believe it's a very simple, you know, demand from the free world. Give Ukraine every tool, every resource, every weapon they need to win the war for Ukraine to be the whole and free. And that's victory. I couldn't agree more with you. That's victory for all of us. And it seems to me they're on the way. They're paying enormous price in blood. But that's probably tragedy of human history. So we have to move from one chapter of human history to another by paying this price. And since they're paying this price for all of us, we're all them big. And on that note, thank you so much, Timothy, for joining us. Thank you, Gary. And uh, thank you to everyone listening. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining us. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Winter is Here, brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative and Substack. I'm your host, Uriel Epstein. At RDI, we are committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast app or at renewdemocracy.substack.com and share the episode with a friend or become an RDI subscriber at rdi.org. Thank you.